And the union's inspiration through the work is black Sharon. There can be no power. All right, welcome 2209. Michael Scott here. We got Josh Olson, Dave Wise. Angie Bonetta, and we're here with Mark Gavart. Say hi, Mark. Hi, everybody. How you doing? Former president, former kicked around appointed rep, and former vice president, too. Some of the most proud stuff I ever did was representing this local on many levels. But now I'm just an average repair person, still around after all these years. Well, that's not the only thing you have cooking, right? So you do, Correct. A, you do a podcast, right? Yep. It's uh, started in 2016. So radio, I heard about it in the 2006, 2007 timeframe that the access station, which I had done TV on in the late 80s and early 90s, said, hey, we're going to do radio. And I know you've got a union background. You want to put a show together? So I already knew eight years, nine years before I ever went on the air, I was like, oh, cool. I know what I need to do. So I had already planned, anything I've ever been successful at, and anybody who has been successful in life, planned for something to get it done right. Mm-hmm. I was in a successful band, a cover band, for 10 years, and the only reason it was successful because we planned things out, thought things through, talked about it, treated each other as a family with respect, and you got a lot of good things done out of it, and everybody got a good payday. I worked with musicians who told me, man, I played for 30 years, I never made this kind of money, and they fed me. I said, no kidding, because I'm a union <laughs> prick, and I'm gonna actually negotiate some stuff here. <laughs> but, so you're successful to get to those things because you planned a little bit. So I was ready in February of 2016, and I did the show just once a month, and they said, hey, can you do it more often? So in 18, I started doing it every 10 days, which I said, you know what? I can still work and lock into every 10 days and do that. So I went out and said, oh, I want laborradio.org. Oh, somebody's already got that. It's a group out of Chicago. They do a great job. It's like, well, it's mine. So my labor radio. Now if anybody said it, it's possessive. It's everybody's labor radio. Cool, let's just do that. (laughs) So it was available. So I got the .com and the .org, and I started posting the shows there and then spent a whole bunch of time listening to other people's material and what they were doing. For me to do the show, it's a simple assemble edit. So now after five years of doing it, I'm kind of in a groove of I interview people, multiple people or one person for the show, and have it be at least 45 minutes of them. And the first 15 minutes is you're going to have to listen to me talk about labor stuff that's going on somewhere in America because no one in Northeast Indiana is talking about labor, whether it's local or it's, Mm -hmm. you know, across in California or New York. So we got to talk about those things and I bring it up. So I wanted to ask you real quick. So other than listening to your podcast, right, so where does one find this this labor news? Um, I usually go to writers. So I started on Twitter in 2011, and I really started doing it when I was vice president. And then now, since I've got my regular job, I don't have to be in an administrative position. I really focus on Twitter. I've got 5,000 people I'm following right now, the majority of which are writers that sit in the room in the White House and discuss things with the presidents and their spokespersons. And then the rest of them are either labor union presidents, labor union leaders, labor unions, locals that have a Twitter account, starting with the AFL-CIO, communication workers. I mean, he just goes right down the list. A labor press I follow in Northwest Washington State called Northwest Labor Press. Then you can find stuff in the big cities in New York. You got something in Detroit. But those are it. There is no more labor reporters. When someone tells you, why, I'm a labor reporter for Bloomberg.com. Oh, great. So you're working for capital because they don't work with labor's perspective. Their perspective is, well, that can't be good for capital because you need to come to work. It doesn't matter what we're paying you. Just shut up and go to work. So you realize then that there needs to be these independent reporters. And I think if we've gotten anything in the recently, it's just there's options everywhere if you follow them on Twitter, and I'm on there every day, all day long, I mean, I'm laying in bed, getting ready to fall asleep. Oh, I gotta <laughs> shut this thing off, you know, because I'm following somebody else who's talking about something. 
there's not really any press out there for we have to create it we have to go seek it because it's not available so which is why i try and cram a lot of stuff into the first 15 minutes of my Mm -hmm. show and if you listen to it it's like okay next we're going to and i give a kind of geographic location of where we're going to to talk about this next situation and what it entails and then in two minutes give some quick coverage and then get out of that and i'm only being able to report that through information that someone else has actually reported so let's just chase that down try to be a clearinghouse for folks because if i'm going to do anything in the next 10 years when i retire in the next few years i retire i'll spend all the time of my day five and six days a week doing exactly this and i'll do more frequent shows more frequent podcasts so uh we are here today uh to talk about the gm bankruptcy yeah that happened in 2008 was the official date so i'm a new hire 2013 mm-hmm. uh you've been around for a little bit longer, right? You said you only have a few years left to retire. Yeah, so. so here's the key thing, though. I've got more than 30 years. I actually am working on my 41st year right now. So someone would say, for you, holy Mark. shit, yeah. what the hell are you still doing working here? Well, um, did you have $400,000 to pay for your two adult children's college School? education? No. That what I say? About thirty grand. Got rid of that in the first year for my son when he was going to school. So um, what you do is when you commit to that, and I knew my wife and I said, yeah, we can support, we can do this. So... We did it. We bought a rental property and had, you know, money and income things. And so we did that. And so once you've spent that money, you realize, oh, what about me? I better work a few more years. So here I am working a few more years. Not that I squandered money on other things, but I just really took care of those guys. But they're good adults. They have great families. They don't call home, but they both married into college debt. So <laughs> they've, they've got that going for them. They don't have their own college debt. So I'll, having that many years in, I've seen quite a few things. I was here when this local union didn't meet on this property here. We met at a hotel in a ballroom. That was our meeting place from 86 through 89. And 89, when they first opened this hall, I was here in 88 when they stuck the shovel in the ground, turned the dirt, had a big ribbon cutting ceremony. Mm-hmm. Then when they opened it up, in fact, right where I sit, Owen Bieber was president at the time of the UAW, sat right here in a press conference and talked about how he was closing union halls all across America. It was wonderful to come to a place where they opened a union hall. And there were a thousand members then. It was one shift, just a thousand members when we started. And then it kind of grew from there. I transferred from Wisconsin, so I came down. I'm one of those no-good cheese heads, so yes. there's a few of us. <laughs> yes. There's a few of us here. But because of that, that history, I've been around enough, I ended up getting an appointed job, so I took care of internal plant communications, the job currently being done by Mark Newman, who's our current communications rep. I quit that job when I realized, oh, there was a current president at the time, and I saw what was going on. It was bankruptcy time. They were reducing heads of, of, of appointed representatives, and I was a doc 46 representative, which is a lifetime appointment. You don't have to go. You don't have to leave. And I said, you know what? I don't like how you're doing business. I'm going to resign and I'm going to come back and I'm going to run for president, get elected. No, you're not. Ha ha. Go ahead. Quit your job. And I came back. He never ran and I beat whoever was out there and did okay and got elected. And I just came for one term. That was what I said. I said, I'm here for one term. What are you going to do? It was taking care of the process, the building, we hadn't done that. We didn't do anything to fix stuff in here. Paint these walls, change the ceiling tiles, put you know multimedia stuff in here so you can walk in with a laptop and plug into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love the advances we're doing. I think what I did was sat down and said, let's have a strategic planning meeting. Everybody's like, well, what's that? So I brought the executive board in and we spent eight hours and I had a plan already. I just wanted to hear what everybody else, I gave them a week to plan out things they'd like to see this property change and do. They all just showed up and clicked their pens and looked at me. 
And so we talked about a bunch of stuff, broke for lunch, came back, talked about some more stuff. Everybody scattered, left. And then I now had a bunch of bullet points of things we should work on. It was the garage. It was a roof over the grill. It was the expansion. We hadn't even walled anything in yet. So the main hall, how things were going, the, this, the well pump was in a horrible disarray. The septic system sucked. I mean, we just did a number of things that no one... It was easier to say, I'm a good steward of the union's money. We haven't spent anything. We got a million dollars. And I can tell you that a closing or a closed local union, when the plant closes, the international union comes down and goes, well, here's 200,000. You guys go ahead, retirees. We're taking these other million five with us. And they take off with that money, and you don't have any control over it. They're, they've just taken it over, and you got to try and make things go. Next thing you know, people are just weeds growing up around the building, whole thing's falling apart. you got to take care of your process. The way I looked at it from president's perspective, this is my property. I own it. You own it. You mm -hmm. own it. It's got to be upkept, and we got to really bring things back. So yeah. I, I think if I've done anything, I started that process. Now it's crazy. I'm seeing. I walk out, and it's like, holy well, crap! Who thought that this. up? Yeah. <laughs> Which is great because it's, it's nice to see because I saw us in the difficult times where we we're talking about laying off the maintenance man because we didn't have enough money to meet the mortgage and then pay him and their insurance and stuff. And then we figured out ways around it and stuff. So. And there were people volunteering to do stuff at the time. So you see those days to the days where you're flush with cash and you've got 4,000 members, it's a different ball game. You should take care of the property and that's the thing you should do and keep modernizing things. So we're on the right tracks. What, what years were you president here? Uh, 11 through 13. Okay, and then you said you had the uh, communications job before? Yeah, so I did that from 92 through uh, 2008, it was, 2009, summer of 2009. I had, they were reducing headcount. They're trying to do all kinds of stuff and all what these local appointments. That, the, when you started, you you could see the bankruptcy. Uh, 07, I started watching things. And then 08, it got real crazy. Okay. And then when 09 came around, we had, we'd finished the 07 agreement, the national agreement, and we were struggling with the local agreement. We got through that, you know, a year later, which is just classic GM. You know, we've got certain terms we want to give to the managers we work with that run the show. And um, I can't use the term, but prick apparently is one that they can totally <laughs> accept. So that's what I usually refer to them as. So these pricks come up with the idea they want to start reducing the headcount of people who are carrying the load for them because they were cutting managers left and right, too. They were taking old engineers saying, hey, that guy's got 35 years. They were just telling them you're done. Pack your bags, get out of here. And then they'd hire mm -hmm. someone right out of college who doesn't know any different, and they'd come in and work at half the salary. So it, for them, it was like a win, and they just did that straight across the board. Now you get a bunch of engineers walking around with a clipboard going, I don't know what's going on. All right, so, yeah, 2008, by the end of the year, GM was $30.9 billion in the red. Immediately following, so what happens, basically? Well, what they did was they asked for and were on bended knee to the government, and they'd talked about it for seven months before they ever sat in front of the Senate to actually have this give or take about what you're gonna do with the money and where you're at and you guys are making these mistakes. To allow that bankruptcy thing to happen and bring in the government, that freaked everybody out. So a number of things that you don't see every day changed on how General Motors does their business in that, yeah, you can't do that anymore. Yep, you're not gonna do that anymore. Yeah, that's wrong too, you can't do that. So what that's what they never wanted. They never wanted anybody to come in and tell them, you're gonna run the business just like this. Right. That freaked them out that they, someone was even talking like that. So but they had to do it because they knew that they had nothing else. What got me was all through this, I mean, in 02, 03, 04, 05, I'd have all these annual reports and quarterly reports, and it was just like, oh, we lost again, oh, we lost again. And you're keeping the same staff that's running the show. 
And it wasn't until the government got involved that they brought people from outside of the auto industry in to try and look at things. And they're like scratching their heads like, what? And uh, to their credit, once I was president, I got to sit down in some high-level meetings in Detroit because you get chairmen and presidents are allowed to come to these meetings. And one of the guys whose name escapes me right now was a GE guy. He had nothing to do with um, General Motors ever in his lifetime. And he was in retirement. They brought him out of retirement. Hey, come run General Motors for a year or two. And his thing was, he goes, yep, we did everything right, except we didn't really give the people on the floor, meaning the supervisors, the ability to say, yep, that's wrong, and here's why. Because they still fear their job. So because of that, they don't get anything good out of it. They're missing the opportunity to get something to listen. Listen to Joe down here who's at H30 in GA at this Fort Wayne plant. He knows what's going on. That's a great point. We should be doing that. And lots of opportunities were missed. And it was nice to hear someone at that level say that. I mean, needless to say, nothing changed, okay? So it still remained the same. We don't learn anything from those things. But it was nice that an outsider said that what we blew was we asked people to give us input, but really it was staff level. So you've got your hierarchy of General Motors, which the UAW did a great job of mimicking and has their own hierarchy, the same situation through the regional offices and things like that. General Motors has vice presidents and then there's presidents and then there's other folks that do all these things and then there's the CEO and CFO. And so this whole ladder stair step thing, everybody has to filter everything all the way up to the top. And what these guys were saying was we don't want any more filters. We want to go to the plant floor and hear what the hell's going on. Why is this in engineering? Why is that in design? Why is this in you know new vehicle production? I give them credit so that changed a lot of the structure, which helped kind of, you know, the old uh, saying that they've used many, many times, which is too big to fail. That's been a true case, sad to say, that there was that opinion that, oh, yeah, that's our ninth straight year. Of, you know, that we had like 15 quarters of just losing money over and over. And not, well, how are we going to still just take that cinder block and keep hitting you in the head? Why isn't something changing here? And it wasn't. So it was frustrating to watch. I went at the time uh, Orville Plumley was president and Mark Orr was chairman in 07 or in 08 when they sat down at the table and were talking to the Senate. And those guys were in Detroit at a meeting about what was going on. And Whoa Whoa Radio said, hey, we want to have you on. So they wanted to have someone on. So the secretary's calling me going, you're the communications guy. I say, I'm not going to go speak for the local union. I'm not, that, I'm not the elected guy. That's not my position. Right. Which is the wise thing an appointed rep should do. Don't th stick your foot out there. So I, I'm on the phone with both of them. They're in the car driving up there. They go, we got confidence in you. You just go on the radio and you tell them. So at the time, Charlie Butcher, now Kayla Blakesley does the job. Charlie Butcher's passed away. He, I call him and talk to him. I said, hey, I'm supposed to come on your show. He goes, yeah, you call me on the phone. Uh, we'll have you on at 6.15 in the morning. I said, no, nope, I'm going to be there. What? I'm coming to the studio. I'm not going to have you sound, make me sound like down the hallway. I'm going to be right there. You could hang up on me anytime, mano a mano, face to face. Yep. We're going to talk on the radio. He goes, cool, bring it. So he's all excited now. Mm -hmm. He thinks, I'm going to get a union guy in here and kick him right in the nuts. Yep. It was great. So I show up, 6 o'clock, he's out having a cigarette, which is what killed him anyway. So he's out having a cigarette in front of the place. I go, jeez, you scared the crap out of him. He opens the door, we come in. The, the sports guy comes in in a little while. There's a producer on the other side. Sports guy does his sports cast. Okay, when we come back from the commercial, I'm going to talk to you about those guys going to, uh, going to Washington, D.C. and talk about everything that's happening there. So, okay, 10, 9, 80 counts down. We go on the air. Looks right at me and goes, hey, folks around the water cooler are saying it's pretty amazing. You guys make $75 an hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> cool. So right, right away I realized, oh, he wants to play gotcha. Mm -hmm. And I said, 
well, it's Charlie, nice to see you too. I said, that's a flawed formula that was put out in 03 or 04 during negotiations. General Motors put this number out there saying that with our benefits, that's what we make. I said, that's a flawed thing and they're actually regretting they ever put that out there, but that's not what I came here to talk about. And then poof, flipped it right around. So we spend the next six minutes and just like now, or I don't shut up, <laughs> I owned him. Yeah. We go to commercial break. He's like, dude, you should do this for a living. <laughs> I said, oh, you thought you'd get me? And so every time I'd see him in the community outside of that for the years to follow, he was just like, my man. He'd always fist bump me, tell me, call me my man. <laughs> and he goes, we totally disagree, but I totally respect what you did, man. That was awesome. And his producer behind him was like this. He's just like, he doesn't say a yeah. word. He's just back there going, yes, you killed it. <laughs> but that's why I didn't want to be on a telephone with him and a cell phone making me sound like I'm like a mile away and my right. audio's way down here and he can right. talk over me. Right. I was right there with him. And I, you shouldn't fear that. If you're going to be in that situation, you need to go lock eyes with him and start talking because you, you lose an opportunity. You know, you don't get an opportunity once like, like that once in a while. I've called people out all the time. We had the, we had the uh, great opportunity of the... Um, Governor was supposed to come here, and he couldn't. So the lieutenant governor comes here. His name was Frank O'Bannon. Nice fella, state of Indiana. He shows up. No one knows who he is. He walks right past the head of security. He's sitting out in front, and I was like, that guy didn't even say hi to him. He come and said, Frank, come on in. So we all sit down at the table. So you got the entire plant staff. We're waiting for the plant manager. And I'm like the tour guide because our shop chairman at the time wasn't here. And I said, well, who here in the room voted for the uh, lieutenant governor in the last election? dead silence in the room <laughs> so we go out on the tour later and the assistant plant manager grabs me in a headlock he goes hey that wasn't really a fair question i go oh you're a little late with that aren't you <laughs> probably should have said something in the room yeah and franco bannon's to to his credit i'd see him three and five years later he goes man you made that room cold because <laughs> <laughs> i've been in a lot of rooms that was fun i go you know what we'd only get one chance to do those things do not fear if your voice shakes a little bit Go with it, bro. Just go with it because you're, you're nervous about it. I'm over being nervous. I'm going to drop it on them. That's the way you should be. Everybody should be that way. I, I keep telling you, why aren't more people like that? We should be doing that stuff. Mm -hmm. I know there's some introverts in the world, but these extroverts need to step up. <laughs> with the bankruptcy, we took a lot of concessions, though. Yeah. Did you see that coming? To a degree, yes, I did. Um, one of the biggest things I hated was that two-tier thing was happening, and they were. T this was before bankruptcy was even declared that we were doing this 07 agreement, and mm -hmm. they said that's what's going to happen. What it was hidden underneath was the VEBA program, and the VEBA program, I wrote this down so I would remember, is the Voluntary Employee Beneficiary Association, which in 2010, once it's approved by the federal government, is called the trust. And Ford, Chrysler, and General Motors have a trust fund for retiree health care because they were saying retiree health care is killing us. We don't want to get rid of pensions, which they ultimately do, mm -hmm. but we want to say this health care is killing us. We've got to do something. And so Gerald Bantam, who was a vice president of the Ford Department in 06, he retires. He had a program that he'd started in Chrysler when he helped with others in negotiating. So they already had this model of it. But we couldn't just do that under bankruptcy without the federal government approving it. So it went through the courts. It took like two years from 08 to 10 to finally get it in action. So January of 10, the trust takes over and gives us that. So when you've got that hoopla of all oh, this retiree, huge healthcare thing is going to go away, all these costs are going to be saved, behind all that are concessions, two-tier wage, and that's the first start of it. So fast forward to 2011, and I'm in Detroit at a hotel, and I 
happened to run into administrative assistants who were at the table with them when they made that call. And they'd had a couple drinks, and I wasn't drinking at the time, and I called them out. I said, you know, it's kind of a shame you guys sold us down the river because us at the plant, we got to deal with these people every day. I got to work across the line from somebody making half my wage. Listen here, MF. And they got up, and two of his homies got in the way of it and stopped it from happening. Letourneau wasn't there at the time. He calls me later. He goes, what the hell are you doing? Right, Rich? Somebody's got to tell him. They already know. <laughs> okay, Rich, I just did it. He goes, I know. I'm trying to clean up after this mess. <laughs> Thanks, Rich. <laughs> but what I did say to him was, and I feel good about it because fast forward to now, um, he's currently in a federal penitentiary, so I'm cool with the fact that I got a chance to drop a bomb on him at the time I did. Because if you've ever been to the Center for Human Resources in downtown Detroit, it's a beautiful $600 million building that overlooks Windsor, Canada, and the Detroit River. And there's a whole row, six floors of offices that look out over beautiful Windsor, Canada. And so really, I said to him, you were just concerned about holding that hot cup of coffee and continuing to have your view of Windsor, Canada. That's where your focus was. Oh, man, that's when he got up and MF'd me and told me worse. So, <laughs> But I still feel good I ever had said those things. So I'm fine with that. <laughs> so how do you feel about the path we're currently on? Do you feel that... We're making enough progress to get to back to where we should be. I thought our strike in 19 was um, a little longer than it should have been. We could have come to a lot of things sounded like when we got all said and done, we're already there in essence. I mean, knowing people that I know who are at the table and doing some things, mm. a lot of things were already, it didn't have to go that far. It didn't have to take that long. And then once General Motors, they were in a win situation. Oh, really? You don't want to work? Cool. And let's not lose sight of the fact that these pricks here at Fort Wayne Assembly, and I'll say that I mean that when I say that, I mean it in the nicest way, they shut off every street light at every gate. So when the sun goes down till the sun comes up, these UAW members are on strike in the dark. And what do they say? Oh, your safety is our overriding priority. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> apparently first. it's not. So for me, I call them out all the time on that. Yeah, oh, yeah, you're the guy that shut the lights off. Oh, no. No, I didn't. I didn't. We didn't know what that happened. They pretended they went home and it didn't. It happened and they didn't know anything about it. It's really? Thing. For that many months? Right. Sorry, I'm not buying that. So, are we making progress? Um, yeah, but we need some militancy, and those things are evolving right now. Um, let's not lose sight of the fact that this whole one member, one vote, or maintain what we currently have by the administrative caucus which one's it going to go to? It's in a vote now. And that was brought on by court proceedings by dirty players. So let's not say that the UAW is over with, it's ruined. There's warts, okay? We got warts. Everybody's got them. Right. And guess what? The Teamsters have been through it, and you could name eight other unions. There's the Carpenters Union in western um, Washington State right now. They're under, their head of folks have quit and they're under investigation. There's some weird stuff going on on a vote for a uh, contract that happened out there. It's dirt going on everywhere. It's a character issue. Does that person in a leadership position have character? If they have character, you can trust them, you can rely on them. And you don't know, you're only gonna trust them at their word. I mean, these are people I sat in the room with and trusted are now doing time in federal prison because they were dirty. And then stand there in front of the judge going, I know what I did was wrong. Really, dude, sorry. Get the hell out of here. I've I got mean, no time for you. And our Constitution dictates our core values. You know, and if you... And they swept right past yeah. it. They'll preach it, but... Yeah, but they're not living it. Mm -hmm. They're not living it. And as soon as they had a chance to go unnoticed, they decided to just do these things. And then guess what? When they started getting in there and started peeling the onion back, 
Oh, yeah, don't worry about that. Yeah, we are worried about that. Oh, really? You've got a box full of cash in your garage? Help me understand that. I'm sorry. I, in my best day, I've never had a... I can't even find a cardboard box with, with a couple of dollars in it or a shirt pocket that's got old dollars in it. Right. So, I mean, these guys had a plan and an intent, and that's what's nasty about it. So they cleaned some things up, and there's some people who are good working right next to them who knew what was going on. So how good are they? Because they didn't wave the flag but they would have lost their job. So they couldn't say it. So I understand that, but I don't understand it either. I'm still, I'm for the guy that says, you know what, that's effed up, man. We shouldn't be doing that. And go with that and see mm-hmm. why. Yeah, send me back to my plant. Undo me from being appointed to the International Union, but this is wrong and I don't agree with it. And then you could go back to your plant and be somewhat of a hero, but no one cares and it just carries on and that's how we just keep perpetuating it. So having the government come in changes things. So the perspective's different. But let's not lose sight of the fact also I would say that John Deere has really freaked everybody out. Mm -hmm. Two agreements. First agreement turned down by 90%, second agreement by 55%. And what they're saying is, yeah, that 10% raise, BS. Those guys are making 20 bucks an hour Mm -hmm. on the lines building those things. Their tradespeople are making 23 to 25, somewhere in that range there, starting out at 23 up to 25. Wait a minute. The same UAW who has a vice president sitting on the executive board has the automakers who are making just as many billions of dollars. What are we allowing this to happen? So there's a number of things I'd like to see refined and changed. We'll see how that goes over time, but we definitely need some different perspectives, and I think that's going to happen no matter what. If the administrative caucus wins and we maintain the system we've already got now for our convention, they will look at things entirely different and be more in tune to what's being said on the floor of the convention, hopefully. If it changes to one member, one vote, well, the gloves are off. I don't even know what's going to happen there. That's just going to be a free-for-all I'm looking forward to. I might take a week's vacation and just go watch that convention <laughs> just to be in the gallery to, to watch. <laughs> I walked in and 40 years ago into a plant. I didn't know anything about a union. I was in my early 20s, got a job. I'm winging it. Look at this money I'm making. This is cool. And it took me about six or seven years. now are, before especially I started, with the right. referral program gone. Yeah. So what I missed was... I never understood what it took. That I just walked in and it was it was given to me. I didn't have to fight for it. I didn't have to go out in the street, bang heads. There was no bloodshed. I did not suffer at all. I came to a collective bargaining agreement, but no one told me how cool it was and what options I had and then what the hierarchy of the union was and how I could fit into that until I came here to this local and I realized, wow, this is like birth. This is it. This is the beginning of a local. I could really step into it. So that's why I got involved did a lot of stuff. I mean, I was here when they turned the dirt for the first time on this property. We were meeting at a hotel every month to have our monthly meetings. There'd be like 38 people there. Your your board, your executive board, and a couple of elected reps, and there'd be like 15 or 20 of us that were regular folks that would come to the meetings all the time. But I was like, there's so many great opportunities. Like I had joined the local union I was at before in Wisconsin and was on the Recreation and Conservation Committee. You know what they said to me the first time? Hey, isn't your dad in management? Yeah, you're a spy. Oh, dude, really? So, so I had faced that. So I come down here. No one knew who my parents were or anything like that. I could start over again and be like, oh, I can be involved in a union. Now I can spy for union stuff. I'm cool with that. <laughs> so we gave up, like, like we were talking about, we gave up a bunch of different stuff. We said the 90-day... Hired and right. Yeah, yeah. Was when gone. you get that was a huge thing. We had since that time, even before that, they were abusing it before that. And General Motors didn't have a lot of people on the local level calling them out. And we had temps with like five and six years in. At the time, I was campaigning, walking around. Yeah, I've been a temp for six years. What? 
Are you kidding me? Because what's a temp with six years? What's the day off? Your own death is your best excuse, you know? Yeah. You really have to be a good person who shows up every day, does a good job, can do 15 jobs in the area for the boss to go, you know what, you're right, and give you Tuesday off for your aunt's death, you know, or whatever yeah. it is. Because they really didn't care. They were just abusing the heck out of people. Well, now they've lucked. General Motors hasn't learned anything, and they're still offering a paltry wage when it comes to first walking in the door here that they now have nobody wants to come work for them because they can actually do better somewhere else. I know a couple of guys that worked here who've left and now are Teamsters and working with UPS and said that's the best move they ever made because they're making more money quicker and got better benefits faster than they could have got here. I don't blame both of them for driving a truck and wearing brown. It looks good for them. Well, with the last contract, we got some wages. Well, like I've I've been there since well, I was there for 15 contract and mm -hmm. 19 contract mm -hmm. and the strike, of course. Yeah. Um, so I knew what the contract was before the 15 contract. So I know we got, we got a lot in the 15 contract as far as insurance for like, we didn't really drop the tiers. Right. And that would have, there was offsets. So they're going to keep their tiers, but they're going to give us other things. And they knew that if they put those cherries out there, that we would take the cherries and leave that other stuff behind and not really fight for changing the tiers. They're so, they're so hooked on that. They still are. Yeah. That was the contract when they, uh, tier two got the tier one entrance, right? And right. Did everybody have tier year. one? Sorry. No, you're good. Did everyone have tier one insurance? Prior, Prior to, to that, yes. You had to do was put your 90 days in, and you would ease into it. So by the late 90s, they started making it where you'd have to work three to five years to get up there. Your insurance was in pieces and portions, and so they were already starting to water it down a bit back then, and they just came full throttle when it went into the 2000s, and it just changed dramatically. So someone would get hired, but they really would never get full benefits for almost five years to, you know, so I get that. I understand business wanting to do that, but those are some of those things we got to fight against. Mm -hmm. If you look at like IATSE, which is the International Association or the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, there would have been 60,000 people go on strike for TV and theater stuff all over the United States if that happened. What are they fighting? Two tier. And they're fighting turnaround time. They don't want to work 12 hours on a set, then drive home two hours or drive to a hotel for two hours, then come back to the set in some remote location somewhere to have to be there for the movie the next morning and things like that. So they're fighting for those type of things. So they got a 10-hour turnaround between. It's kind of crazy. But they did fight that second tier. That was one of the big things they fought for. Yeah, that's still one of those things that sticks in my craw because I would watch how that would go. And depending on how we did things in the United States and how the economy was going would raise or lower your COLA and wouldn't hardly ever lower it, hardly ever lowered until right before bankruptcy, it lowered multiple times, but was always raising. We were always getting something out of it. And they, they hated yes. that. Yes. I mean, in 84, they took from us what were they called PPO. It was personal paid PPH, personal paid holiday. So your birthday, no matter when it fell, if it was a Saturday, you got Friday off. If it was a Sunday, you got Monday off. You can't come into work on your birthday. You got the day off, and they paid you eight hours for the day. General Motors is like, oh, we're launching that, and it never came back. It never saw it again. So it was, those are the kind of things I really realized right away. I was like, wow, I'm in a union. I get my birthday off? This is cool. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say um, I had a, a guy I was working with. He was telling me about this. Uh, program they started to help curb absenteeism it was like every so many weeks you would just get a random day off in the middle of the week 
Yeah. What, what was that? Uh, I don't remember what they called it, um, but you had to have like a quarter's worth of 100% you were here. Okay. You had to, if you had a day off, it was an excused day off or mm. in advance. It was a vacation day. You couldn't call up on Tuesday and go, yeah, I'm not going to be in Wednesday. This and, was before Doc 8 though, right? Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah. And Doc 8 was developed over time because none of their systems were working. So they just decided to go, screw it. We're going to... You know, you're going to jail. You're going. Right. You're going to vacation jail. Right. And that is a messy system. To it is. Um, most uh, committeemen will tell you that that's what they spend a large portion of their time mm -hmm. dealing with. Is. So uh, we were talking about some of the things we lost, and I have some dates here. So 2007, 73,000 workers struck for two days to get Viva. Yeah. Uh, 1998, 9,000 workers, 54 day strike. The full GMS implementation. Yeah. Uh, 1970, 400,000 workers, 60 days, seven days. That's when we got COLA, higher wages, uh, 30 and out in the pension. Right. So it's like, I mean, this goes all the way back to 19, well, 36, 37, when the GM recognized the UAW as. Right. That was a fight on its own. Right. But so you got what? 80, 90 years worth of bargaining. Right. And a lot of it just is gone. Right. And they, and they've been chipping away at it like a good, like any good Republicans, they want to take things, but they're going to take it little by little by little. And it's, it's hard to see that stuff that my family had worked for to get us. To fought? And they fought for it, yeah. They fought for gets taken away. Yeah. And it keeps well, and on getting taken what away. What they rely on is they have a running tab, General Motors does, of what they have. And don't think that they aren't, when, as soon as negotiations are over, talking about the things they're going to be, what are the six key things we're going to have? They have a war room in which they talk through this stuff. They have endless attorneys that pay attention to this. Now, I don't know what our UAW stature is to that and what we combat that with. I know there's some great local chairman and others who have some really good things going and if it Laterno's done anything he's kept that shop committee together unified so that no matter when the managers came at them to try and put a wedge in between them it wouldn't happen they stood unified and they wouldn't let those things happen do we have anything that would shut the place down do we have a strikeable issue that's the tough thing can we have any leverage with this whole um, chip thing going on and, and then in COVID that's given mm -hmm. us no grounds to stand on so it's been a very difficult situation. I think that's another important issue is um, voting for your elected officials you know you want somebody in there that's going to fight for you. you might not like that person as a person or what mm -hmm. outside of work but right. you want to vote for the people that are going to do the best job for you and are not right. scared of management. Right and, and think, you, you can't have somebody that's going to go in there and go come out of there going well this is all they're going to give us. Exactly. Probably not. Exactly. That's what they, they want you to think yes. that so they spend all their time I mean I started out when I was president and I met the personnel director and I swore at him told him off on behalf of the entire membership. Oh, it's going to be like that? I said, absolutely, because I have watched you and you as a personnel director are cut from the same cloth that everyone else is. You stand here and want to arm in arm. We're joint. We work together. Meanwhile, you send your minions, the employee relations team out, to cut everybody off at the knees. I'm not playing this game. So I guess what? I didn't get any overtime. All I got was 40 hours a week because per the Department of Labor, I'm off the property, and they only have to pay me 40 hours a week. Well, I spent the first two and a half years, like my wife tells me, she goes, yeah, you lost 40 grand on that one. What did you do that for? Well, was the principle. The principle was, no, screw you. I'm not accepting you. I don't want to deal with you. And you're going to talk to me and I'll talk to you. But, well, I'm the one that runs your paycheck and you get 40 hours. If you want overtime, you're going to come in here in the plant and work it. What? 210 in the afternoon, I'm supposed to pack up everything and leave the hall and go run in there and work and bump somebody out? I don't know if that's not happening, Captain. I didn't do that. 
but I mean, everybody does it differently. I'm not saying I, I'm doing that to be a hero or anything. The point was is somebody has to stand up to him. I figured I'm only here for one term. I can stand up to him. It's not that rough. I mean, show up and do it. Letourneau does it every day. For the nice things he says and does with him and stuff like that, too, trust me, when those doors are closed, he's kicking him in the shin on a regular basis, and it's great to watch. I've seen him in action. I've been a fly on the wall. It's like, damn, yes, my man. Glad I'm on your team. <laughs> I agree. Um, that was another thing you brought up uh, about having a strikeable, strikeable issue locally. Wasn't that taken away from us? After the bankruptcy, that yeah, we didn't get that back till sixteen right. in that time frame, fifteen, sixteen time frame. So there was a whole time there that you had like eight, year, six years where you couldn't go on strike, you couldn't call a strike mm -hmm. on a national or a local level. So we just had to accept and work. And some of these local agreements took eighteen months to get done. Ludicrous. Yeah, it is. So how do you think? Like uh, you pay a lot of attention to what's going on around, right? Like nationally. So what do you think is the big motivator for these workers standing up? Uh, COVID was a big thing and sitting at home and then realizing that, holy crap, that's all you're going to pay me? Looking at these folks, they pretty much have had it. If you realize who's kicking it the most, it's, you know, there's uh, a Catholic hospital in New York and it's the Buffalo suburb and it doesn't come to me right now, but they just were on strike for 35 days and got huge staffing gains and things like that as a nurses union. You talk about a nurses union in Northeast Indiana, they freak out. Oh my God, we can't do that. Oh, there's unions all over. I lady I graduated from high school with is a nurses union, union vice president in Minnesota who just turned me on to my next guest on the show who I'll have on who talks about being an RN. It's Is it Mercy in, in New York? Yeah, correct, Mercy Hospital. And they got a great agreement. It's the Communication Workers of America were representing these nurses. And they came up with some great stuff. It was all about safe staffing. That's why they went on strike. And in 35 days, they got that. They got pay increases, but they also got safe staffing. So you have to have a minimum number of beds per nurse. You can't just say, hey, I know you're supposed to have six, but now you got 12, I gotta go. And what? How am I gonna take care of 12 patients? Right. And then also write in all their charts and do all their things. So people lose sight of all that stuff. So someone was saying that, oh, strike Tober 2021 is bigger than ever. What it is is the media is talking about it more because it's out there more and there's more independent media talking about it. But if you look back to 19, I mean, this time around, there's like 23,000 people on strike in October of 21. In 19, there were 85,000 Americans, and we were 40,000 mm -hmm. of them here with the UAW. Right. So right. it's it's not as big as it's been in the past, but it is a more enlightening time where people are really talking about it more. You'll see it more on the news. So me as a young worker, we gave up a lot. So we've, we've talked about like COLA, we've talked about the tier system, what can I do and what can we do? Back, yeah. Basically to um, like, where do we need to go? Well, I would do you think we'll ever get any of this back to some degree. Yes. Um, really what it relies on is resolutions to the national agreement and changes. And you could probably find some great language for those in previous agreements, mm -hmm. things that we've lost. I mean, I don't. And I've been looking for one. We were just talking about this last night. I have not been able to find one like from before right anywhere <laughs> so we have wayne state university in suburban detroit mm -hmm. has the L ruther library and there is a uaw archivist okay in fact if you called the uaw archivist and said hey i'm going to come up on tuesday the 11th and i want to sit down and look at previous gm national agreements they would go okay i'll have them ready for you 
Excellent. they will give you okay. the drawer. Thank you. I'm serious. It's But no one takes that step. What I've done is I, I follow them on Twitter all the time. They just do the coolest mm-hmm. stuff there. They show pictures of old things. I'm like, oh, look at that from the 1930s mm-hmm. and 40s when they had political campaigns, stuff like that. But they have all those old agreements. You could pull pages of stuff. You just have to go to the table of contents. Mm-hmm. It's just like... You know, everything's so Google-oriented right now. No one wants to sit down and look at a book and then do a handwriting or make a copy of that page and go, shit, this is a language we should be Mm -hmm. throwing back on them. We do that as a local. That helps that guy and gal at the national table go, yeah, yeah, hell yeah, we should be hammering that. They're not going to – they're so consumed when they get there, they just take whatever resolutions are handed to them. So let's, as a local, be the ones that give them resolutions that actually mean something. Mm-hmm. If you've been to a resolution meeting here, we pretty much say, everything we got, let's just say we're sending it up. And we do. We send it to the regional office. They sort through it go, okay, these are all duplicates. These are 14 with the same thing here, 10 of these and one of these. Yeah, I know. The ones and that I up. submitted for our national, I wrote it out and then I gave everybody – here now you write them out and we <laughs> yeah, so turn them all more, in right so, so more there was one. like right. 10 or 12 of us right on that wrote Great. all Man. the same yeah there's nothing wrong with that it's a yeah. great concept to pass that around a little bit yeah. too because what you and did it was too, all things that we all wanted right yeah but you also when you put pen to paper it it stays with you mm-hmm. it, that is something like every class i've ever taken anytime i've ever sat in a meeting and go holy crap they said that and i'm writing it down mm-hmm. as fast as i can I look back at the notes later, but it's also committed to me. I can always remember it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Because you've done that. He so now me, you've, you, you've why done Why do I write my own notes when I do my updated events? And I'm like, because I can read my writing and I remember what I wrote. Right. How I wrote right. it. It, it comes back to you as going soon as off you see of a it. flyer. <laughs> I agree. I sound like a bumbling fool when I read it off a piece of paper. I don't I'm just know a why. high school educated guy. And the only reason I hang around with academic people, the rest, I don't fear any of them because it's not about what they know that I don't know or anything like that. I don't mm-hmm. look at it. I don't fear them. It's a matter of, I want to learn. I'm still learning. I'm 60 years old. I still can learn things. There's plenty of people can learn stuff. Don't stop learning and don't immerse, not immerse yourself in it. So you have options to get old language. Once you've done that, then you can start seeing, once you sit down, you look at these old agreements, you'll go, oh man, we should be doing this. Why aren't we still doing this? Mm-hmm. They'll always say, well, for business purposes, that really wasn't practical, but they had some really cool stuff. So when we fill out our resolutions, um, just small things too, like on mm-hmm. the floor in general, like our red wear Wednesday or red shirt Wednesday. Wear red. Gosh, like I can't talk. I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, they look at those things, but we we broke a lot of um, knowledge up when we got rid of the referral program. Mm-hmm. Do you ever see that ever coming back? We, your, uh, well, General Motors likes to, I can't think of where it is in there, but they're the ones that call the shots when it mm-hmm. comes to hiring and firing. So you can suggest to them, but that's not something that's contractually controlled by us in right. any way. I'm like, can I so, put it in that suggestion thing? Like, Well, yeah, yeah. but it's still it's General Motors up north in Detroit is going to decide that they're right now, because the labor market's so thin and they need everybody mm-hmm. they can get their hands on. And they've, if I would say in a 300-mile radius right now, if you went out there looking for people, they'd be like, oh, GM Fort Wayne? Yeah, thanks yeah. anyway. And they're just not going to go. They're just not going to come to it. And I can't fault them. Mm-hmm. They would know a cousin, aunt, uncle, Somebody who's come here, worked, and left and said, yeah, F that stuff. I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that. And I, it, it's not for everybody either. I've had plenty of people walk in this door 10 days later like, ooh, I'm out, mm-hmm. and said, I thought anybody could do these jobs. Yeah, guess what? You can't. Yeah. That was something else uh, Angie and I had had a discussion before this previously. I don't, I'll just bring it up. But the culture's changed too, right? So mm-hmm. when – I don't even know when it started, but before – 
the jobs were set up. Anybody on the street could walk on the job, right? That's what they always said. Yeah. But the jobs now, from when I started, yes. are way more difficult than right. they are right now. And right. he started before I did. Yeah. And so I've seen, like, there was, like, well, I knew all of Final Three back in 15. There's probably, like, two jobs I struggled with. Mm-hmm. I have three jobs on my team. I might, like, right there that there's so many. You can't just bring somebody over and, and train them. them on. Right. Right. And they're like, what are you doing? Like, you cannot possibly get that job in four hours. Mm-hmm. Sorry. The jobs used to be, you know, five foot 10, six foot nine, 280 pounds, small person, big person, didn't matter, male, female. Everybody could walk on a job and do it. That was the goal and design. And they just blew that up just yeah, to, to get them done. Because General Motors comes down every January and tells the plant, do more with less. You're going to cut 10%, whatever their numbers are, they give a percentage. You're going to cut this many heads. So you think to yourself, what? What happened to those people that were doing? They mush things together, but they're not universal anymore. We can't combat that. We have to work within what they give us. Right. We don't. We can say and suggest, but the, the person you're bitching to is an engineer who might walk by or your immediate supervisor, and neither of them disagree with you. But the engineer who designed those things, in many cases, did it at a PC at a desk somewhere mm-hmm. and decided that takes 0.6 seconds, this takes 3.1 seconds. Okay, that job's done. Oh, I didn't you know, factor in that something was misaligned and nothing's in line here. Now yeah. I'm in the hole and I don't have time to get even recouped to get the next job. And Yeah, because that happens all day. the time. Every day. Oh. So Good. I have a question for you, yeah. Mark. So to keep our local strong, and engaged, what do you think needs to happen more? Well, we're using social media to a degree. I think we could use it more. Um, we should probably cr- have our communications person do some different things, but I can't make that person do it. I'm not in that position. And it's a little bit different. It's um, a younger person's game. So we have to admit that we are around for 30 years. And so we should let the people who are younger do some of these things you know give them some guidance and tell them whoa 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 we can't be saying that that's it yeah okay they're pricks but we can't be saying that on twitter or whatever it would be (laughs) you still but i mean engaging the member there's a disconnect from um like i laterno walked by at the line at the end of the line at the end of shift and someone yells to him yeah get that local agreement done and he came around and came back and, you know, talked to him about it. Like, look, dude, you understand what's going on? And he explained a bunch of stuff. So now he's got an audience of 16 people that are waiting in line who are all listening to this whole conversation, which was good at that moment. But that showed me what a disconnect we've got in that member had no clue and didn't know any resource other than to yell at his chairman who was walking by that about that. So we have to figure out a way that we do that. If you don't attend the meeting, you're not going to know. And that's right. what I always right. did. I always said, you got to come to the meeting. What's the biggest exodus of every union meeting? As soon as the chairman finishes his report, the every, room empties. Yes. So we always know that. So I always give my quick president's report, and I would say, ladies and gentlemen, Rich Letourneau. And then I would just get out of the way because they came to see him. They didn't come to listen to me. They didn't come to listen to the financial secretary or anybody else. And the committee chairs are doing good things and they're doing stuff. And Populating those standing committees is very important, and then giving them, nurturing them, giving them the chance to do stuff, getting them off the line so they can actually function in some way. I mean, those are good things that can happen. What can we do is we still need to engage more with those folks on the floor, and it's so many things happen in a three-shift operation, Mm 24-7. That thing doesn't stop, except for production will stop, but then we still have to have maintenance and other folks fixing things. 
So there's a number of work things that are always going on. So how do you connect with those people? Because there's a burnout level that these folks are totally toast. They don't mm-hmm. want to hear about work. They don't want to talk about work off hours. So it's hard to engage those folks. I think the the strike brought a lot of people together and made one, it actually like, it made me want to do more. In my it actually industry. helped. We definitely got mm-hmm. some new folks, and I think you're exactly right that they're. When I came out here, the, the random times, I'd come out here at 10.30 at night, I'd come out here at 2 in the afternoon, I'd come out here at 4 in the morning. And the biggest thing I saw was the same faces here, mopping the floor, hauling trash, doing stuff. I wasn't worried about what the gates had going on because this is central to everything, the hall here, mm-hmm. where people come and need and find out what's going on, what's the new news, things like that. And I realized right away there's some people who are here doing stuff every day they weren't appointed reps. They weren't elected to anything. Right. They were just members who said, "I got to commit to this. I can help out." So I even I didn't saw have nothing else going on. Well, <laughs> yeah, there's that. I mean, I did, but I didn't. <laughs> there's that. We always got something at home to do, but there is. It's important that they're somehow engaged. engaged. Yeah. Getting people to this hall and getting them involved in things is a big plus. I mean, this. Um, trunk or treat thing that just happened that was a real positive so younger families with younger members i mean i already went through that stuff like i'd drag my kids out here for picnics all the time they're finally like uaw picnic no i'm not interested i don't want to go oh i remember being in janesville but you if you start early so both my kids neither of them in a union but my son was a barista for 10 years in chicago and that's part of what he was talking about was what are we going to do? And he was meeting with and trying to figure out how these other baristas were going to get a union together. And it didn't ever happen for him. But fast forward to 21, and now baristas are really saying, F this, we're done with this. This is going to change. And it's starting now. And So we do have like a whole new group of people that came in after strike because we got a bunch of people hired. So we had to replace some people. Mm-hmm. How do we get those new members then? It's, a, it's down to individual committeemen, which most committeemen don't want to mess with that because they got elected. Now they got an area to run, and they're taking care of these problem children over here, whatever they would be, and then their focus isn't to engage the new member. You could, you could be a new member working for a month, and only because someone next to you said, oh, that's your committeeman right there. Mm-hmm. That committee person still, and I call them all out when I was president. I would do it now as I'm going to do. Go visit these people. You see a new face. I don't know who the hell that is. I must have shift referenced. I better go check out. Who is it? Go introduce yourself. Find out. Say, oh, I'm your union rep. You want to exchange numbers? You want something like that. Don't be bothered by that. That's the right perspective to take. You're here to take care of the member. Look at how unions are done. If you were just in our own um, amalgamation here, there's local union chairmen in other units who have to work 40 hours a week, and mm-hmm. then they can be a chairman. Mm-hmm. So here you are, a mere committeeman, committee person, and you have the time to be able to do stuff. You should be engaging with all 200-plus-odd people. I can think back to Amy Richardson, her dad, Reagan Richardson, one of the best committeemen I ever worked with. Why? Because every day you knew he would walk down that line from the beginning of final line all the way through to all the subgroups on the side and out to final process. Between the beginning of the shift and about 11 in the morning, you would see him. Well, what did he have? He had very few calls on his logs because they would stop him and go, hey, Reagan, you know this idiot over here? He's like, oh, get out of town. All right. He'd write it down, process it, talk to the bosses. Things got alleviated. There was never even a call on it. 
that is a lost thing. No one actually does that connection anymore. And Rich and I have talked about it, and he said, I, I know. I keep saying it to him. And Rich talks to him about it too, and he's one that tries to push them there. Some of them are doing it, but that's how we got to engage that newest member mm-hmm. is go out and visit with them and talk to them. My him. third shift guy is amazing. He's always out there. Yeah, and that's all uh, you want. Is you, even if they're just walking down the aisle and give you a mm-hmm. wave, you know that, hey, it's Tuesday. I saw him on Monday. This is pretty cool. That if they walk by on Tuesday and you whistle at them, they're going to come over and mm-hmm. talk to you. That's all you want. That's the, that reassurance that you've got a representative there. And I still say, you're going to spend, as you spend five hours on the floor, you can actually sit down for an hour or so later. You'll be fine. But the, the whole sitting thing is really a positive for everybody. That's all they want to do. <laughs> I stayed on second shift for quite a long time because it's highly populated mm-hmm. with younger seniority just to kind of get information. But nobody's reading contracts anymore right yeah that's a really tough art to do because it's got very um legal reading so you have to have if you're a paralegal you might somewhat understand that but it's a matter of reading it i when i was appointed one of the jobs the benefit reps gave me was something would come down from detroit and they'd say okay here's four pages with information can you boil this down so we can put it out and so that's what i did was go through it and take it and make mm-hmm. it so it was palatable to an average citizen, not a, le- a lawyer with some legal degree. So I just took whole paragraphs and go, wow, screw that, and I'm putting mm-hmm. lines through it, and then highlighted the things that were important, and then put those all together in multiple paragraphs and handed it back to them. They're like, holy crap, this is okay, we're going to put this out. But then you at least can do something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we have anybody doing that anymore now, and it's not like we didn't do that all the time, but there was a few times that we did that, and that helped people better understand what was changing, what was happening, why it was evolving. But they have lawyers write this stuff up, mm-hmm. so it reads like that. Well, like I broke down a lot of my – well, I haven't done it with the new one because mm-hmm. I just got the one a couple months Copy. ago, and I've been right. pretty busy with everything going on here. But with the 15, that's what I did, and I had one in my locker and one at, at home. home. Yep. And so I would just, hey, well, this page or that page, and I had a little – them and people would read it and we used to have a copy of the local and the national Mm -hmm. and the little area where they could come and just grab it i haven't gotten an extra copy but we still have the copy of the local yet so once i get a copy of the national i'll probably do the same thing i wish it was something like more people did but well it's a matter of whether they want to or not i think um people are disengaged from the idea that they didn't they don't think that they've got anything other than whatever they walked into. Mm-hmm. They think that General Motors gave them whatever it is they're getting, right? Like now. that book really had nothing to do with. They don't them understand at all. that, and they can't relate those two together. And I don't. It's hard to get yeah. it in an orientation to say, "Oh, hey, by the way, the reason you're here is we want you here, but we need you." And oh, by the way, there's a union that represents you, and here's your financial secretary who sees them, talks about the due structure and all. Mm-hmm. Things like these people are taking my money for what? Well, you've got an agreement, and it's but none of that is explained. They just go through the surface stuff, but nothing gets drilled down into. So you really don't have a chance to even talk about that stuff. And ideally, we fought for and did throughout the '90s have a day at the union hall in which they go got into a, a quite a bit of stuff about the union history and things like that. None of those things are lost because we got to shuffle you out to the floor real quick. Let's go, mm-hmm. go, 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 go. So we've sacrificed some of those things in the need for bodies yesterday. So. Isn't that something that we can put in um, resolutions for, for our local Absolutely though? Right. We should do that. Yes. So that it's on paper, because if it's just a handshake agreement between the training department and 
the managers that run everything in labor relations, mm -hmm. what's the first thing they're going to do? <laughs> that thing's out of here. That'll save right. us two days or three days, and we got to get the orientations now this. And they just go through this and sign here, initial this, boom, you're gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I bought a used car. <laughs> right. That's. Yeah. I mean, we're trying to get back without the education committee mm -hmm. doing the classes. Mm -hmm. Right. There's I, one of the things I did when I was president was use joint funds. They set that program up in the 80s, and we weren't sending people anywhere or taking that money and using it for classroom stuff. And Brian Hartman followed up with some stuff, and Holly has done some things with it too. So there's money available. We just have to design something and make it happen and then get the people off the floor to do it. But we have to negotiate those things because they right. won't allow that to happen unless we negotiate it and then have a pool of people to cover for the folks that are in here in class and stuff like that. So it's difficult to do. Oh, yeah. There is money to support it. We still shouldn't shy away from that. You'd ask the question about um, how do you get people to learn the contracts, right, or how do you get them reading? So whenever anyone asks me questions, not that I'm, like, super knowledgeable or anything. So I actually try sitting down reading the local it is super dry. I don't recommend it to anyone. Right. You will put you to sleep. Yes, it will. <laughs> but um, I always tell people, I'm like, well, just watch in your area. See, pay attention to what management's doing. If something seems wrong, there's probably something in the contract about it and try and find it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do. So I go and read it. If I don't understand it, I call my, my committeeman out, have him explain it to me, his interpretation, how he would have handled it. And they know it. They do mm -hmm. know it. That's right. they, yeah. they. I say, oh, they're sitting down. They're actually reading that stuff. So they are paying attention to it because they're going to get called on it. And... Rich would always do that. The first first day I was president, first week I was president, I'm in the four o'clock in the afternoon. He goes, hey, come with me. Bangs on the door, goes in the work center. There's three guys sitting in there. What are you guys doing sitting here? Get out there. Get out on your floor. Which, you know, hats off to Rich for doing that. That was 2011. And he still has that push him to go. You can't get anything solved sitting in here. Oh, okay. And just go out in your district. Just go out in your area. Talk to folks. And that's what you want is they're not, it's not an official call. It's a, hey, come here. Give me this interpretation. That's what. Yeah, that's a great mm -hmm. move. Anyway, so I always push my show, which is mylaborradio.org. Mm -hmm. You can find it there or on any podcast platform. If you just search My Labor Radio, it's in Spotify. It's everywhere else. So I just try to make sure the show covers politics for working people, talking about labor issues, and then just interviewing folks. I can make the most dull, boring person sound somewhat interesting in some cases by helping them by doing some quick edits. And I just, like I said, I just assemble it together on Saturday and Sunday of that weekend, and this is a weekend I'll be doing that, and I'll have it done in no time at all. About spend about six hours on every show, and but then I'll take a week off and won't do it. And uh, who's your latest episode on? Or um, actually, the one that's out right now is John Stevens, who's the candidate who declared in February of this year, 2021, that he's going to run against Jim Banks in February of 2022 or next year in 22. So I think that's great that here is a year out. We're we're talking to the guy. Mm -hmm. Excited about the next guy I'm going to interview that's on the show I released this Sunday, which is Nick Schillingford. He's a Minnesota Nurses Association member who's in his late 20s. He's been, you know, since he got it, he's an RN, he's now out there talking about what it takes to be represented by a nurses union and what they go through. And it's great to see Northeast Indiana has to have those things happen here. It's like it's not going to happen. It's too many people fear things, but. It would be great if we could do that. All Thanks right. for having me, guys. Yeah, this is no awesome. Yeah. Thanks for coming. <laughs> we could probably talk for hours. Yeah, yeah we, I could sit here for three more hours. I'm cool with that. Thanks for probably going. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it.